This is our seventh class. I had requested a set of notes to be printed for us tonight. Somehow that didn't happen. It's probably my mistake, so I apologize. But you will get the notes that I thought you would have tonight next week. All right? Let's pray and let's get started. Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us in all the ways that you've shown your kindness to care for each one of us to bring us to this moment. We ask that you would build us up as we look at your word, that you would teach us to handle it more carefully and more properly, that as we do so, we would appreciate its depth and its scope and above all, the precious message that it contains for us. May your spirit be our teacher. We ask this with thanks through your son. Amen. All right. We are going to push on tonight, make a few more comments about inspiration, and then we're going to move on to discuss a closely related topic, which is inerrancy. Okay? All right. Last time, you remember, we went through a series of different theories on inspiration. What just happened? Did it flash? Is that what happened? Okay. Um, That's not supposed to happen. Well, we'll see. We'll see what goes. Um, We went through a series of different theories on inspiration and came to the conclusion (laughs) it's mocking me that verbal plenary inspiration is the most sound understanding of inspiration. The word verbal means that inspiration goes right down to the very words. The word plenary is a Latin word that means full. It means that scripture is fully inspired. Now, two key verses which we looked at last time, we're going to look at a little more now our 2 Timothy 3:16 to 17 all scripture is god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness oh this is maddening <laughs> let do you projector sounds like flipping back and forth between 640 mode 800 yeah well he's doing a good job and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If this keeps up much longer, I have an idea what we can do. But it'll cost us a minute. You can do that right now. That may solve it. Okay? Um, The second path, well, let's look at the key concepts here. All right? Scripture, not the authors, is inspired. There's no such thing as an inspired author in the biblical sense of the word inspired. Okay? Secondly, Scripture is useful. No, this is too bad. Okay, hang on a second. Let me... Clay, don't do anything yet. Uh, That's an 800 by 600 projector, isn't it? Okay. Let's see if it's happier now. Well, you tell me if it starts misbehaving. 
Okay, scripture is useful. It's the scripture that has the property, not the authors. Now, we're not going to go into the details, but if we were to look at the Greek in 2 Timothy 3.16, you would discover that it's possible to translate it as all God-breathed scripture is useful and. Now, some people have looked at that and they said, oh, this must mean that parts of the scripture are inspired and parts aren't. All right? It is possible to do that, but a careful examination of the Greek suggests that that would be very silly to do. It's not argumentally possible because then you couldn't trust that to be the authority for that point. Um, wait, say again. I didn't understand you. It's not logically possible because then you couldn't trust that well, yeah, you'd get you'd get into one of these cat chasing its tail kind of problems logically, but really the structure of the Greek does favor the translation that's up there, okay, and it favors it strongly. I'm just mentioning this in case you run into somebody who says no, it could be translated another way. Well, yes, it could be translated another way, but it's a very awkward way to translate it. This is a good translation. Okay, now the second passage, and we again looked at this last time. It's not flashing anymore, right? Okay, okay. Second Peter, uh, one that's supposed to be twenty. Well, no, it's nineteen and twenty-one. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a very important passage, but it has a couple of things that seem a little difficult. The first one is this. Peter says that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Now, that phrase, prophecy of Scripture, seems to be saying no portion of Scripture which is prophetic came about by the prophet's own interpretation. That's the way it looks. The reason we think it looks that way is that we tend to see the word prophecy and think it means telling the future. The word that's translated there in Greek, prophecy, really means a proclamation from God. Now, many of God's proclamations have to do with the future, but it really means nothing that Scripture asserts. You could replace this phrase, no prophecy of Scripture, with nothing that Scripture says. Okay? Now, the second thing that's a little tricky here is this phrase, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Do any of your Bibles have a footnote there that suggests a different way to translate this last phrase, the prophet's own interpretation? Anybody have the New King James? And it might it might be noted in another one. Any private? Okay, any private interpretation? Okay, that... New American Standard. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Okay. Matter is outside. 
All right, well, okay, yeah, they, they've added that in to smooth it out. But we still haven't hit the thing I'm looking for. Okay, that's what I'm looking for. Okay, this last word here could be translated interpretation or it could be translated origin. Now, I do not know why all the translations put in the word interpretation because interpretation doesn't really make sense in the context. The next line tells us no prophecy had its origin in the will of man. Since this word can be translated origin, I think it should. The point that's being made here is that scripture wasn't made up by the human writers. It came from the mind of God. Okay? So I, I, I like I like origin here better. Again, God is the initiator. He's the one who is acting, not men. And there's that interesting phrase in the last sentence. No prophecy ever had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried along is a Greek word, pharaoh. It's used among other uses to describe how a boat is carried along by the tide or the waves. And you kind of get the idea, you can sort of build a word picture here. Imagine yourself, you're in a rowboat out on the ocean. You have some control over where the boat goes because you're rowing. But the waves and the wind and the swells and the tide also have a great amount of control. And what this is picturing is that the Holy Spirit is working to make sure that the authors get where he wants them to get so that what comes out at the end of the process is the word of God in the way that he wants it expressed. God uses the human authors and their style and vocabulary and even their experience, but he controls it in such a way that the product is God's word and it doesn't really have its origin in the will of men. It really has its origin in the mind of God. Okay? You with me? All right. Now some concluding thoughts on inspiration. The agent of inspiration is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who is in control. The instruments of inspiration are the human authors. The object and the product of inspiration is the autographs. Everybody remember what the autographs? Oops, that's not what I wanted to do. What the autographs are? What are the autographs? Okay, the original manuscripts. Do we have them? As far as we know, we don't. Okay. We'll talk about the significance of that a little bit later. The beneficiary of inspiration is the human reader, right? God did all of this to reach us. The result of inspiration is divinely true, authoritative, and inerrant scripture. And we're going to talk about the meaning of that term inerrant in a few minutes. Okay, questions we're going to consider next. What's the extent of inspiration? Does it include the Old Testament and the New Testament? Does it include all of both? Second question, is there anything in our modern Bibles that is not inspired? 
Third question. How should we respond to claims that there are errors in the Bible and therefore it can't be inspired? All right. Let's look at this first question. What's the extent of inspiration? First question is, what is Peter, I'm sorry, what is Paul talking about when he says in 1 Timothy 3:6 or 2 Timothy 3:16, all scripture is inspired? Second question, are both the New Testament and Old Testament inspired? Third question, does inspiration extend to words, to letters, to punctuation? All right, let's take these one at a time. The answer to the first question is that if you look at the context in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul is talking to Timothy. And what does he say to Timothy? He says, all scripture is inspired, and he says, you've known it since you were a little baby on your grandmother's knee, right? Well, when Timothy was a little baby, was the New Testament written? Probably not any of it. Maybe just a little bit of it, but probably not any of it. Okay? So, when you first look at it, you have an inclination to say, Paul's only talking about the Old Testament. However, there are reasons to believe that he is that his words apply to the New Testament as well. Okay? In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul cites Deuteronomy 25.4 and Luke 10.7, and he calls them Scripture. Now, this is very important. Okay? He's showing that he considers portions of the New Testament to be Scripture. Now, Luke was written by the time that he wrote that. Okay? So, the whole New Testament wasn't finished, but some of it was. Okay, second. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter calls Paul's writings Scripture. Alright, you familiar with that passage? That's the one where he says, a lot of the stuff that Paul writes is hard to understand and people tend to twist it like they do the other Scriptures. Alright? Okay, thirdly. Peter's statement in 2 Peter 3.16 is in the same book as 2 Peter 1.20-21, the one that we just read. So we know that Peter, when he talks about Scripture, is including New Testament within that category. Alright? So we've got two writers, Paul and Peter, and they both consider the portion of the New Testament that was written at the time that they wrote to be Scripture. So I think it's very sensible to say that the two big statements that they make apply to both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay. When Paul wrote 2 Timothy 3.16, what I said earlier was, this is a better clarification than I think I spoke foolishly earlier. When he wrote that, most of the New Testament, except these books, was already written. Now, it's true that Paul is talking about how when Timothy was a baby, well, not a baby, but a young man, he had been raised up in the study of the Scriptures. But as Timothy was growing up, the New Testament was being written. And by the time that Paul wrote that, most of it had been completed. Does that make sense? Have I confused you? I hope not. Is everybody with me? See, what what we're seeing is that The New Testament was written over a very narrow period of time, right? Christ went to the cross in A.D. 33. 
probably the first book of the New Testament that was written was the book of James in A.D. 47. And Paul probably wrote 2 Timothy around A.D. 66. Well, within that roughly 20 years, a lot of the New Testament was written, although some of it had not been written. And when Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, you have known the scriptures since you were a boy, well, when he was a boy, most of the New Testament, or possibly none of it, had been written, but as he was growing up, it was being written. With me? Okay. I'm probably beating that to death. All right. Another key idea. You remember in John 14:26, Jesus promises his disciples that the Holy Spirit will bring to their remembrance those things that he had said? Don, do you have that verse? Yes. Would you read it out nice and loudly for us? But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I say. Okay. Very, very important statement. You know, when you ask the question, how, why is it that portions, especially of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sound so similar? You know, one possible explanation is that some of them barred from the others, but I think a very good explanation is that the Holy Spirit was at work supernaturally to enable these guys to write down with reliability the things that they had seen in Jesus' life and had heard from him. Okay? So I would say that the conclusion is that Scripture includes both the New Testament and the Old Testament when Paul and Peter are talking about it. Therefore, I think it's safe to say that the Old Testament and the New Testament are both inspired. Do you follow the argument? Okay. All right. Now, does inspiration extend to words, to letters? to punctuation. All right, well, I think the evidence of Scripture indicates that even the words and letters of Scripture are inspired. I don't know why that's so small. My PowerPoint is doing strange things today. Okay, Jesus cites Exodus 3.15. I think that's where he speaks of God saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he emphasizes the tense of the verb there. He says, since God says, I am, that means that this is a continuing condition. I'm still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He builds his argument on a single word. Okay, and when Jesus cites Psalm 110, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, how can it be that Scripture says, the Lord, and that's the name Yahweh, Jehovah said to my Lord, notice we've got caps and not caps. And he says, how can David both be, um, I'm sorry, how can, how does it go? How's the argument go? How can David call God this and call Messiah this? Right? Again, his point, the point that Jesus is making, is built on a single word. Okay? He's looking at the contrast between these two words. I'm kind of drawing a blank on how that argument goes right now. If anybody wants to help me, you can. 
or maybe we shouldn't chase it right now. Let's move on, okay? I seem to be slow tonight. Okay, in Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, Neither a jot nor a tittle will pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. Do you know what jots and tittles are? No, they're not punctuation. Okay, they're very small letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? And what he is saying is the very letters of Scripture are God's word and they will be and God's word will be fulfilled down to the letter. That may be where we get that expression, to the very letter. Okay? All right. In 2 Corinthians 2.13, Paul is making an argument and he says, words which the Holy Spirit teaches. Now remember we talked about theories of inspiration and we said concept inspiration is a bad theory. Paul didn't say in ideas which the Holy Spirit teaches. He said in words which the Holy Spirit teaches. Okay, He's emphasizing again that inspiration goes right down to the word level. Okay, Jeremiah 26.2. God tells Jeremiah not to omit a word of what he was told to say and also to write down. If he were to omit a word, he would be omitting something that God wanted there. Again, it goes right down to the word. Okay, in the end of Revelation, you know that curse that's there that says... Cursed is anyone who adds to or subtracts from the words of this prophecy. Okay, God, again, wants it all there. So I think it's a sound conclusion to say that the very words and even the letters of the scriptures are inspired. Now notice, we haven't talked about punctuation yet. Okay. What about punctuation? Well, what is not inspired in scripture? Some things in our modern Bibles are not inspired. Okay? Punctuation isn't inspired because there was no punctuation in ancient Hebrew and Greek. Okay? It just didn't exist. Now, if you look at a Hebrew Bible, if you look at this, this is Bob Deffenbaugh's Hebrew Bible, you will see punctuation in it. Okay? The punctuation that's in here was added by the Masoretic scribes. They understood the language well, and they divided up the text and put in punctuation to help us. But the punctuation that they put in isn't inspired, and occasionally they were probably wrong. In fact, Hebrew, as, as it was written in the autographs, didn't even have vowels. But if you look in there, you'll find vowels. The Masoretes added them, and most of the time, they're right. There are a few places where you'd have a word like, you know, cat versus cot. Well, if you didn't have vowels, it would just be CT. And if someone guessed it was cat when it was really cot, it'd be wrong, right? The guess would be wrong, not the scripture, right? We have to deal with issues like that in some cases in the Masoretic text. The same thing is true in Greek. There was no punctuation. Okay, capitalization is not inspired. 
There were no capital letters in ancient Hebrew. And in the Greek in which the New Testament was written, they weren't using capital letters then. Now, capital letters <laughs> existed, but they weren't generally... No, I've got that backwards, right? There were majuscules at first. I'm sorry. In the, the Greek that the New Testament was written in, it was all capitals, and later it was changed to all small letters. Okay, But the important thing is that Greeks did not capitalize the beginning of a word. They didn't capitalize the name of God the way we do. The difference between capitals and small letters did not have the same meaning in Greek that it does in our modern language. Now, what that means... How many of you use a Bible that, that capitalizes pronouns that refer to God? If you use the New American Standard... A lot of the Bibles use it. A lot of the Bibles do it, okay? Some Bibles don't. When you see he referring to God and the letter is capital, that is not inspired. It could be that it's a he that's not referring to God. And you need to keep that in mind. I can't think of any cases in a modern Bible where they got it wrong, but it's not inspired, okay? Same thing with the word God, with capital G. You know, we see God with capital G and we say, well, that's the real God. But in the Old Testament, the word Elohim is used to refer to the true God and also to false gods, to idols. And we look at it and we say, oh, it's capital G, it's the real God, or it's small g and it's false gods. Well, there is the possibility that our modern translators got it wrong. And it's not that they copied it incorrectly. It's that they looked at the word Elohim and they said, in this context, it's referring to the real God or it's referring to false gods. Do you see what I'm saying? Does that scare you? It really shouldn't, okay? There are very few cases where there's any ambiguity at all. And again, I can't even name one. But those things are not inspired. As a matter of fact, in the Greek language, the way the New Testament was written, there usually weren't even spaces between words. Okay? And occasionally, you have one of these situations where if you divide the words up differently, it says something differently. You've probably seen jokes and you know funny things like that. Well, that could happen in Greek. But again, it's quite rare. Okay. I think I already told you that vowels were not part of the original Hebrew text. And we've talked about how that could be confusing in a modern English translation. We've talked about word separation. Okay. The chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles are not inspired. I think you all know that. Okay. And you've probably seen places where you say, why did they end the chapter here? Because it looks like the same paragraph goes on three more lines. All right. Yeah, I think it was in the Latin Bible, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I don't know who did it, but but that's definitely not inspired. Okay. Any questions on <clears throat> those issues? Please don't make that feel that you can't trust your Bible. There are very few cases where those things would cause any confusion. But you should be aware that there is the possibility that some, somebody 
didn't intelligently divide the words or intelligently punctuate the verse or didn't intelligently capitalize a name. It's possible. Okay? If you run into a problem when you're studying scripture, that might possibly be the solution. Not likely, but it's possible. Okay. Ooh, that color looks terrible on the screen, doesn't it? I shouldn't use that color. Okay. Let's talk about inerrancy. Inerrancy. It's a corollary to inspiration. A corollary is just an idea that follows from an earlier idea. Inerrancy follows from, ins from inspiration. Inerrancy is the idea that the Bible is true and without error in the original autographs. And that follows from inspiration. Dr. Ryrie puts it this way. God is true. God is a truth teller. God breathed out scripture. Therefore, the Bible has to be true. It's very simple, isn't it? I had that question on my last IQ test. Did you? Did you pass? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I hope you got it right. Um, it, it's really very simple, but it's debated. Okay? There are about nine different views on inerrancy, and we're going to go through these quickly just to sort of surface some of the questions. Okay? In each one of these cases, we're going to identify the view see what it says about what in the Bible is without error, see what it says about what in the Bible contains error, and then look at some additional comments. Okay? The absolute inerrancy position says that everything in the Bible, including scientific statements, is true. Nothing in the Bible is untrue. And this position would argue that the biblical authors meant to reveal scientific truth historical truth and doctrine. Okay? This is obviously a very conservative position. Alright? I think this is fully compatible with what scripture says about itself. Now, we're going to look at a second view that's very close to this. Okay, the second view is full inerrancy. It says that everything in the Bible is true although phenomenological language and approximations are used. Okay, let me give you an example of phenomenological language. You get on your computer, you look up the weather page, and it says the sun will rise tomorrow at 6.17. That was put there by a scientist, wasn't it? And every scientist and most school kids know that the sun doesn't rise, does it? It doesn't, does it? The sun stays right where it is. The earth rotates. Now, scientists use phenomenological language. Phenomenological language is language that describes things as they appear to be, not as they really are. Okay? You could say, you know, the moon is in the seventh house. You remember that song, when the moon is in the seventh house? Okay? The moon is never in that constellation. That constellation is hundreds of light years away. But where we see it, it happens to be in front of it. Right? That's phenomenological language. We all use it. Okay? To say that the scripture uses phenomenological language is not to say that it's in error. 
You know, when when uh, Copernicus started saying that the Earth rotates around the sun, people attacked him because they said, well, that means the Bible is wrong because the Bible speaks of the sun rising. But it's not an error. It's just a way of communicating that everybody understands. All right, this view would say there's nothing in the Bible that, concern, that contains error. This view takes note of human conventions of communication, but it allows for no error in the use of those conventions. That makes sense to you? It says the sun rises, that's a convention of communication. But it has to use the convention properly and express truth in the process. Notice also that approximations are allowed. You know, if it says uh, King Solomon received 67,000 bushels of grain one month, well, it might have been 67,532. That's not an error. It's an approximation. Okay? This view is also compatible with what Scripture teaches. All right, limited inerrancy. This view says that all non-empirical matters related to salvation are true, but scientific and historical statements in the Bible may show the errant ideas of the human writers. In this view, God revealed only spiritual truths, not science or history, which are not essential to the Bible's purpose. Okay? The distinction that's suggested by this view between doctrine and historic slash scientific truth breaks down in practice because biblical doctrine is built on scientifically meaningful events, isn't it? What does it mean to say that God is the creator if God isn't the creator? The very idea that God has authority over us is based on a scientific statement that God is the creator of everything that exists. So this view has serious problems. Purpose inerrancy. This says that the Bible effectively accomplishes its purpose to bring men into saving fellowship with Jesus Christ. However, errors are present and they are numerous in scientific and historic matters. They would say that inerrancy does not equal factuality, but only effectiveness of purpose. Okay? Response to this, it's impossible to reliably convey truth through error. The reader is not told where the errors lie. Can you see that this one is really dangerous? Okay. I got an error. This is supposed to say accommodated revelation. What in the Bible is without error in, this, in the view of accommodated revelation? Very little. They would say even Paul and Jesus show errors in their thinking and they change their minds and their ideas. Okay. Now one of the accommodations that they're talking about was they would say that the Bible writers said that Jesus cast demons out of people when in fact there are no demons. That was just what people thought in those days. Okay, they would say the Bible is not reliable in either factual or spiritual matters, but in every area it must be subject to human judgment. Okay? I don't think Jesus accommodated his views to the views of the people of the day. He was always upsetting people, wasn't he? He would say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He wasn't trying to 
fit in with what people thought. And further, he insisted the scripture was true down to the very letter. Okay, view number six, the non-propositional inerrancy view. In this view, the very question, what, is in, what in the Bible is in error, is the wrong question. The question, what in the Bible, is without error. The question, what in the Bible contains error, is a wrong question, because the Bible is not a propositional revelation. It's just a pointer to a personal encounter with God. You remember who, who does this sound like? We've run into these guys over and over. It's the neo-Orthodox view. And it's utterly wacky. Okay? This, this, this whole concept came from an attempt to rescue Scripture from the liberal attack on the reliability of Scripture, but the cure is worse than the disease. Okay. We got three more to go. The inerrancy is impractical view. Okay, this view says you can't answer the question what in the Bible is without error. You can't answer the question what in the Bible has error. Since we don't have the autograph, the doctrine of inerrancy has no practical importance. Now, this I think is a cop out. Okay. Um, I think we've talked a little bit about why we have confidence that our modern Bibles reflect what the autographs wrote, and we'll talk about that again. Okay? Um, even though we don't have the autographs, their absence does not render the idea of inerrancy useless. And furthermore, textual or lower criticism has shown us that the copies we have are highly accurate reproductions of the originals. Okay, view eight. Inerrancy is unhistorical. They would say, you shouldn't ask the question what in the Bible is with or without error because the early church didn't care about inerrancy. So we shouldn't. Okay? These are getting wackier and wackier, aren't they? Alright? The early church did believe in inerrancy. Christ taught it. Paul taught it. Peter taught it. I didn't put it up there. Augustine and Aquinas, two early theologians, obviously believed it. Thousands, millions of people have believed it. To say that it's unhistorical and nobody believed it is just silly. Okay, the last one, inerrancy is irrelevant. They would say inerrancy is not a biblical concept. Biblical authors were not concerned with truth and inerrancy divides the church. Do you see what's driving this? Unity at all costs. Okay, The Bible does teach inerrancy. Biblical authors were concerned about the truth. And you know what? If inerrancy divides the church, the problem is with the church, not with the doctrine. Okay? If you're trying to have fellowship with someone who says that the Bible is not inerrant and you can't have fellowship with that person, the problem is the person, not the Bible. And maybe you shouldn't be having fellowship with that person. Okay. Some final observations. Boy, we're going to finish on time tonight. This is good. Okay. Inerrancy applies to what the Bible asserts not what it reports. The fool has said in his heart, 
there is no God. Does that mean the Bible says there is no God? No, it says the Bible says fools say there is no God. The Bible doesn't assert that there is no God. It reports that there are a lot of clowns out there who say that there is no God. Okay, secondly, when we interpret Scripture, we need to use sound hermeneutical methods and pay attention to conventions. Okay, one of the conventions is approximation. Okay, one of the conventions is phenomenological language. Right, those things are perfectly common in ordinary communication and there's no reason they shouldn't be in the Bible. Okay, statements in the Bible must be accurate, but they need not be precise. Do you know the difference between accuracy and precision? <coughs> Let's say I was testing out a, an air gun, and I set up a target on the wall there. I've got two air guns, and I shoot at both targets, and on one target, the bullseye is here, and I've got shots scattered all around it, but they're all pretty evenly scattered around it. And the other gun, I shoot at it, and all the shots are within like a half-inch circle. Now, those two guns are equally accurate because they both, if you average all the shots together, they both average to the bullseye. But this second one over here that has a very tight group is much more precise. Okay? Scripture is not always precise. But our understanding of inerrancy says that Scripture must always be accurate. Does that make sense? Okay. The doctrine of inerrancy does not say that there can't be variations of style, vocabulary, and even grammar. The doctrine of inerrancy doesn't say that theologically, theological terms can't be used differently by different writers or even that they can't be used differently by the same writer in different contexts. Does that make sense to you? You know, we, we'll do an exercise in the next hour where we're going to look at the word salvation, and we're going to see that it can be used in a number of different ways. Okay. Inerrancy allows for varied but not contradictory reports of the same event. What in particular am I talking about? Okay, the Gospels. How about the books of Chronicles and Kings? Okay? They both treat the same events. They give you a somewhat different viewpoint, but the accounts are never contradictory. All right. Inerrancy doesn't require verbatim reporting of dialogue. We can trust that the Holy Spirit sufficiently supervised the writers of Scripture that when they write down a record, say, of a conversation between Jesus and the disciples, if it varies slightly between Luke and Matthew, it's not because either one is in error. It's because the Holy Spirit is allowing the writers to report accurately the content of the discussion, although it may not be the exact words of the discussion. You comfortable with that? I think we need to recognize that because of the evidence of Scripture. Okay, and finally, inerrancy is not disproved by our difficulty understanding problem passages. Now, what I'm basically saying here is that the burden of proof 
on anybody who would deny inerrancy is on them. It's not on us. There are passages in Scripture that we find difficulty making sense of, but the fact that we can't make sense of them yet does not prove that the Bible contains errors. And in fact, there are many passages of Scripture that people didn't understand until the last hundred years, and now we understand them. So I think as time goes on, we're getting a deeper understanding of Scripture. So there's no reason to question it. Yes? I don't understand number one. Okay. Alright. Let me explain it better. Um, do you remember when uh, Sennacherib attacked the Israelites? Do you remember that story? Sennacherib? Was it Sennacherib? Was it Sennacherib, wasn't it? In Isaiah 37 and 8? Yeah. Okay. Sennacherib shows up and he says, I'm going to capture your city and your people are going to be eating their own waste. It didn't turn out that way. Okay? The fact that scripture reports what he said, but what he said didn't come to pass, doesn't mean that scripture is in error. Okay? It accurately reports many things that people said, but there are a whole lot of lies and errors that people said recorded in Scripture. That's not the same as saying that Scripture states those things. Is your statement there should be the answer applies to what the Bible reports, not what it reports? No. Okay. okay. Only what the Bible asserts must be inerrant, not what it reports. I've probably not stated it in the best way. Okay? Go ahead. Yeah, it's a little confusing because down in number five you use the word reports again. Okay, well, all right, all right. Well, for, for example, you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are reports from three different men of the same events, and sometimes the accounts vary a little bit. Just like if you had six different newspaper reporters reporting on the upcoming inauguration of President Obama. They would say different things, but if they're truthful reporters, you could put all that information together without contradiction. Okay? So that's what we're saying here. All right. Um, you can't do this because those notes were supposed to be printed tonight and they're not. All right. For those of you who are feeling ambitious, just think about this question. How would you respond to someone who said, the Bible teaches that there was a universal flood that covered the earth, but modern geology disagreed, disagrees? How can you say that the Bible is inerrant? Just think about that. And there are a number of strategies for responding to that. There's no single correct answer. We may have time to talk about that next week. Okay? All right, let's take a break. We're right on time, so let's start again right at 745, if you would.